Father, we ask that as we open up our Bibles, that you would open up our hearts and our minds and that you would make us attentive to your voice. And we ask that your voice would be louder and would be more defining for us than the cacophony of voices that we have surrounding us all day long. Sometimes those dark and depressing voices in our own head. God, we pray that you would break through it all and that you would speak to us today a word of hope and encouragement and that you would bring us joy today because we've sat in your presence. And we ask these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. So uh, I am notoriously known around my house for being not very up on uh, technology and pop culture and things like that. Uh, My daughter's Uh, oftentimes savagely actually make fun of me because one time I had suggested that something might go viral on eBay. And (laughs) apparently that's not a thing. (laughs) And so this week they were quizzing my my knowledge of pop culture. And uh, the first question was, uh, what right now is the most popular social media medium? TikTok. I got that one right, I'm proud to say. The next question I didn't do so well on, the most popular presence on TikTok that everyone says they hate but secretly love. Wisdom, do you know what it is? No. Not even wisdom knows? I actually don't know what it is either. I didn't even put it in my notes. I couldn't find it. But then my daughter, Audrey, said, Dad, have you heard about the Josh fight? Now, immediately, this perked my interest because I'm Josh as well, and so I wanted to know about the Josh fight. And apparently, some of you might have heard about this, about a year ago, during a, uh, a fit of pandemic boredom, a young man in Arizona whose name was Josh Swain uh, made a post on Facebook where he invited everyone else with the same first and last name that he had to come and battle against him for whoever would have the rights to be the proper and the right Josh Swain. And so he he challenged them to go and meet them at a park in Lincoln, Nebraska. And actually yesterday, April 24th, they showed up in hordes, these Josh Swains, for a fight over who would be the true Josh. Now, it didn't turn out to be the the bloody uh, gladiatorial fight that some of us had maybe hoped for and imagined. Instead, they just fought with... uh, 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 foam pool noodles. But, you know, in thinking about that, I just thought, you know, that is so tragic. I thought that's incredibly tragic because the world needs more Joshes, not less. You know, we Joshes need each other. I thought, come on, Joshes of the world, let's unite together, you know? We shouldn't be fighting against each other. We should be pulling together and helping each other, you know? Why not rally the Joshes of the world to work together? Now, I didn't really think that. But I have had couples sitting across from me in my office that I have very much thought those things with. I've thought, come on, your marriage is not for the purpose of hurting each other. You have been brought together to help each other. You know, you have been brought together not in order that you would fight against one another, but you might partner together in order that together you might be able to achieve something that neither of you could do apart. And this is the purpose of marriage. 
You know, we began a series a few weeks ago called Every Square Inch. We've been talking together about what it looks like to see the reconciling power and love of Jesus break out in every square inch of our lives. And we began the discussion by talking about what that might look like to have the saving power of Jesus break out in our marriages. By the way, there's Josh Swain, in case you were wondering, and his Facebook post, in case you were doubting me. But we've said, what does this look like in the realm of marriage and what we said is that the, the very essence of marriage underneath the reconciling rule of Jesus, the very essence of marriage is a covenant. It is a, it's an exclusive and permanently binding covenant. And we said two weeks ago that the, the obligations of this covenant involve sacrificial, self-giving love and deference to one another. When you enter into the covenant of marriage, you bind yourself to another person exclusively till death do you part, which means that you delete Bumble and you shut down your, uh, your, your, your dating page on uh, eHarmony.com or whatever, and you shut down all other options and you, and you permanently commit yourself to one other person. But then part of that commitment involves a daily and a regular self-giving love toward this other person. Those are the obligations of the covenant. And then last week we said that, look, the fruit of this covenant when it's lived out is security, it is safety, so much so that you can be vulnerable and known. You can be naked and unashamed in the presence of this other person. But what we're gonna talk about today is not the obligation of the covenant or the essence of the marriage covenant. Today, I wanna talk to you about the purpose of the marriage covenant, the purpose of marriage. And we're gonna be looking at this topic from Genesis chapter two, verses 18 to 23. You know, it's interesting, Genesis two doesn't give us what our culture often provides us regarding marriage. Uh, we are inundated with a culture that is full of tips and advice about marriage. This week, I looked on Amazon, and there were over 100,000 titles on the topic of marriage. And so there were books about healthy marriages. For example, there was The Good Marriage, and The Great Marriage, and The Perfect Marriage, The Fierce Marriage, The Passionate Marriage, The Naked Marriage, The Vertical Marriage, The Sacred Marriage, The Servant Marriage. And then there were books about dysfunctional marriages. For example, the impossible marriage, the sex-starved marriage, the emotionally destructive marriage. And then there were helpful tips and guides to help improve your dysfunctional marriage. There was, quote, the new rules for marriage and the seven principles for making marriage work and the four habits of a joy-filled marriage. And for those without time, there was the 10-minute marriage principle. And then some, one of my favorites, how to improve your marriage without talking about it. And then this one, first, kill all the marriage counselors. But you know, Genesis 2 doesn't give us tips or principles. Instead, what it provides is a sacred story that in many ways is archetypal. In other words, it doesn't just speak about the first couple or the first humans. It is a story that speaks about all humans, about all couples. It is primal. It is fundamental. It is foundational. And here we, we, we learn something 
of the meaning and the purpose of marriage. And so we want to dive into this text and explore it. And notice what it says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Let's set this in its context. The chapter opens with God forming from the clay the first human, and he breathes into his nostrils the breath of life, and the first man becomes a living being. And then God plants a garden, and he sets the man in the garden in order to work it and to keep it. And then this, then the Lord said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper who is fit for him. So at this point, everything is good in creation. Everything is good. Everything is wonderful. This is paradise. Everything is good, but there's one thing that's not good. It's not good for the human to be alone. And the antidote that God provides for the man's loneliness is what's called in our text a helper. Now, in modern ears, this sounds a bit demeaning, maybe offensive, as in, uh, hey, would you like to be daddy's little helper today? You know, and your four-year-old jumps up, yeah, I sure would. You know, that may work with a four-year-old, but most women and most adults, for that matter, don't want to be anybody's little helper. But listen, the word in Hebrew that's translated in our Bible as helper is the word ezer. And it doesn't carry at all the connotation of being a little helper. In fact, this is a word that is used most frequently in the Old Testament to apply to God himself. And God is anything but Israel's little helper. Old Testament scholar Phyllis Tribble puts it like this. She says, the word in Hebrew, ezer, has been traditionally translated helper a translation totally misleading because the English word helper suggests an assistant, a subordinate, indeed an inferior, while the Hebrew word azer carries no such connotation. To the contrary, the Hebrew scriptures, this word often describes God as the superior one who creates and sustains Israel. And so the word helper, the word azer, it says nothing about the status of Adam or his helper, but it does say something about the inadequacy of Adam to do the work that God has given him to do without help. Well, what work has God given the man to do? Well, look back in chapter 2, verse 15. You see, there's something that the man is inadequate for. What is he inadequate to do alone? Again, verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. You know, from the opening chapters of the Bible, we discover that the universe we inhabit belongs to God. It is not a brute fact. It is a gift that was brought into being through the imagination and the creative power and will of God. And then the garden is planted by God. This is God's universe. This is God's garden. But he sets the human into the garden. Why? It says to work it and to keep it. In other words, God hands the keys of the whole place over to the human. And he says, I've given you a job and your job is to work it and to keep it. Those words work and keep could be translated as cultivate. In other words, take the wild, raw, stuff in the garden and cultivate it and bring out all of its latent potential and then care for it, protect it. 
And this work that he has given to the man in the garden doesn't, is not limited to the one man back in the garden. Instead, this is indicative of God's will for humans within his created world. Because look at what it says back in Genesis 1, verse 26 through 28. See, back in Genesis 1, God creates humans in his image, male and female. He creates them in his image. And this is important because in the ancient world, only the kings were said to bear the image of God. The rest of the peons were servile. They were there to serve the kings. But in God's world, all humans are kings and queens. They have been invested with rule and authority over God's world because look at what it says in Genesis 118, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God looks at us and he charges us with this job. He says, you have a job to do. And what is that job? Well, it's threefold. First, it involves to be fruitful and multiply. He says, go and make babies and create families. I do appreciate it that the very first command that God issues to humans in the Bible is to go and make babies. But he says, create families, be fruitful and multiply. But he says, not only that, he says, he says, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over. Remember, the humans are to be kings and queens in God's world, exercising God's rule on God's behalf over the world. And that involves caring for the world that God has made, attending to the plants and the animals and the oceans and the streams and the lakes and the soil and the air. In other words, to protect the world from toxins that would come in and destroy the world to protect plants and animals from that which would harm the plants and animals and put them in extinction. But not only protect creation, not only create families, but, but he says rule over or have dominion over the world. And what he's describing here, I believe, is, is God's call on the human creatures to go out into the nature that God has made and to do something useful with the nature and draw out its full potentials and create culture. And so nature is what God has made, it's the universe, but culture is what humans make with what God has made. There's a, a man who wrote a book uh, whose name is Andy Crouch entitled Culture Making. And in this book, he argues that this move from nature to culture corresponds in the Genesis account with the move from good to very good. Because when the image bearers come into God's world, God gives them the task to take what God has made and to almost be sub-creators in God's world and to create out of the creation of God, to make culture out of nature. And he suggests that this moves from nature to culture is a move from good to very good. And he puts it like this. He says, the world has grains in it. And so grain is part of the natural world, but you take grain and you crush it and you mix it with salt and water and yeast and you put it in the oven and you bake it. 
And, 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 and grain is good, but bread is very good. Or you go into the world, an image bearer goes in the world, and the world has eggs and chickens in it. And the image bearer takes the eggs, taken, of course, from carefully tended chickens who have names and pedigrees and backgrounds. And they take the eggs and they crack them and they mix them and they fill it with cheese and with bacon and avocados. And eggs are good, but omelets are very good. The world has grapes in it and vineyards, but the image bearers go and they take the grapes they take the grapes and they crush them and the, 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 the yeast on the outside mixes with the sugar and the juice on the inside and they, they let it sit in the right conditions. And if you're a Baptist, you get grape juice, which is actually an incredible technological achievement. But you know, grapes are good, but I think we have reason to believe that wine is very good. You know, and the world, the world has sound in it, sound all the time. But an image bearer comes in and arranges the sound and combines it with melody and rhythm and harmony, and you get music, and sound is good, but music is very good. And so we human beings have been put in this world and entrusted with a high calling, with a job to do in this world, to create families and to protect creation and then to cultivate nature and make culture. We have been given this mandate. And so now let's get back to our story again. We've been given this mandate, but look at what it says. We cannot do this work alone. Isn't it interesting that the, the institution of marriage comes in response to the problem that the human creature cannot do this work alone? And this is teaching us something about what it means to be human. It means that it's not good for you to do life alone. You know, trying to do what God has tasked you to do in your home with kids or in the neighborhood or at school or in the church or in the community or in your vocation, trying to do that alone will not work. You need help. And so look at what God does, verse 19. And then the Lord God out of the ground formed every beast of the field and bird of the air and brought them to the human to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. And so now God is suiting or is, is, is situating, uh, 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 creating a, a match for Adam. He's, he's, he's bringing Adam some different options. And I can just imagine Adam as he's naming the different animals, looking for a partner that's suitable for him. I can imagine the music comes on in the background and Adam starts singing, matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match. Come on, Jonathan. He'd know. Find me a fine, catch me a catch. But tragic, 
The man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the air and the beasts of the field, but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Now, I know that animals can be great companions. This is my dog, Brutus. He's as good of a companion as can be. But Brutus is not sufficient for the task of partnering with a human creature to do all of the things in the world that God has called us to do. And so look what it says in the text. The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he fashioned into a woman and he brought her to the man. You know, now a new image emerges of God in our text. He first played the role of a gardener and of a potter fashioning the clay into a man. But now he plays role of anesthesiologist and puts the man to sleep. And then surgeon, he cuts into his side and takes out a rib. And then architect, he forms from the rib this woman and he brings her to the man. And the woman has been taken from the man. He's a, she's a part of the man. And now, now the man said, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. And so upon seeing this new creature who is like him, but not quite like him, who is his equal, but who is his strong support and partner, he breaks out in poetry and in song. And the story ends. Now I would just want to stand back and I want to ask, what does this teach us about what it means to be human and about what it means to be partners in marriage? And number one, what it, what it shows us is number one, this. This passage is teaching us that we as human creatures have been entrusted with important work to do from our creator. It was Dallas Willard who said in a class I had with him, he said, you know, we talk a lot about how people need to trust God, but have you ever considered how much trust God has placed in people? Look at what God has put under our care. He has entrusted into the care of humans the authority to exercise dominion and care in his world. We have been given an important job to do. In other words, the world we inhabit is not a brute fact. It is not simply there for our consumption. We as humans are not intended to simply entertain ourselves to death, to pace the cage ultimately until we die. We have a job to do in this world. And that job has only been heightened by the fact that this world is broken and fallen and that the order and beauty that God intends for creation has been marred by human sin. And so that means it is our call, it is our vocation to go into the world and yes, make babies and create healthy families and environments where children can learn and grow and be loved and know joy. And we are called to go into the neighborhood and to find places where it needs cultivation and to do work there, to open up our homes, to open up our houses, to open up our hearts. And, and where there is disorder and ugliness in our homes and in our own lives, to do work there. There's work for us to do in this world, all the time work. The second thing that we learn from this text is we cannot do this work alone. 
By ourselves, we are not sufficient for everything that stands in our, in, before us. You know, you cannot do this work alone. There's no possible way for you and I to do all the things that God has given us to do by ourselves. Be fruitful and multiply, can't do that on your own. Care for creation, can't do that on your own. Cultivate the raw materials of the world and do something useful with them that benefit the human community, can't do that on your own. Deal with the junk in your own hearts, in your own homes, on your own, can't do that on your own. We need help. We need help. Trying to do the work that God has given us to do on our own is not good. And do you see in our text that God has provided us with help for the work? Now, in our text, it's interesting because it's the marriage partner that comes in to support Adam or to partner with Adam in the work that God has given the humans to do in this world. And that should at least teach us about, it should tell us this about marriage, that marriage does not merely exist so that you can know intimacy or friendship or romance with another person. Marriage exists for the, first, the purpose of something beyond the marriage, namely for the purposes and work that God wants you and your partner to be about in this world. Now, of course, it's not only a marriage partner that gives us help to do the work that God has given us to do because these two will come together and become one and they'll produce offspring. And those children will have children and their children will have children and children, children. And ultimately you'll have a community of people. In other words, God has provided us not only with a spouse for those who are married, but for those who are not married or maybe don't intend to be married, he's given you friends and roommates and brothers and sisters and parents and sometimes your own children or siblings in order to partner with you so that you do not have to do life alone. There is help all around. So why do so many of us do life alone? Well, I think there's many reasons for that. One reason may be that the help that they want to give you is not the help that you want or the help you think you need. You know, I think a lot of us, if we had our way in our marriages, we would create a partner who is a carbon copy of ourselves that looked like us, that thought like us. You remember Anna and, uh, or Princess Anna and Hans? You know, it's crazy how we finish each other's sandwiches. That's what I was going to say. I've never met someone who thinks so much like me. Our mental synchronization can have just one explanation. You and I were meant to be, that just doesn't go like that, but you know, that's why I always lose on um, uh, karaoke at home. My savage children kick me out in the first round every time. But many of us want mental synchronization with our spouse or with our roommates or with our siblings or with whoever God has brought us around us to partner with, we want them to think 
the way we do about money or about opening up home and hospitality and about uh, how to resolve conflict and what to do with the in-laws. We want somebody who thinks just like us. And if they just thought like us, then we could receive their help. But it's interesting because in our text, God doesn't give Adam a carbon copy of Adam. The, the word in, in Hebrew to describe the partner is, in, in, is ezer, which is strong help, and kenego. And that word can be translated a counterpoint. And so you think a point and then a counterpoint. And this is what God has given us. And so at least it might mean this. Maybe if you have issues receiving help from somebody around you that God has brought to you, it's because you don't have appropriate humility to know that maybe your way is not the only way. Maybe how you process about this issue is not the only way to process. Maybe you could be helped by a different perspective, by another way of looking at things. So sometimes we don't receive help because the help doesn't feel very helpful because it's not the help we wanted or thought we needed. There they are, by the way. Second, I think sometimes we don't receive the help that is available around us because some of us hate weakness. And when we ask for help, even though we know sometimes in our heart of hearts we need it, we feel weak and we want to avoid that like the plague. You know, I am a three on the Enneagram, which uh, can mean, uh, you know, it's one of these personality type things. And the Enneagram three has the need for success. And what that means in practice is that I don't like to do things that I'm not good at. I I, I like to play ping pong because I can almost 51% of the time beat Jonathan Wee. But I like to do things, some of you are like me. I'm not, there's a lot of things I'm not competent in. I'm terrible at household projects and I can actually feel a little bit intimidated by my wife who at one point disassembled our dryer and then reassembled it again, watching only a YouTube clip. But there can be embarrassing weaknesses about yourself and somebody comes to you and they put their finger on it and you wince you know, uh, a couple, last week, my dog Brutus got a terrible infection in his legs and they started to swell up and he was in tremendous excruciating pain. We took him to the vet, checked him into the hospital and he has never looked so vicious as he was when the people came to him with the very intru- instruments that were gonna save his life. And that's a parable of us all. Very often, the very thing that will save your life are the things that make you wince and growl the most and bite other people's heads off because you don't want to deal with it because it makes you feel too bad about yourself. But look, we know about it anyway. We all see it. And so if if you're going to receive help, you need to welcome it into your life. God himself said it's not good for you to do life alone. There's a third reason. I think, I think sometimes, and this is really related to the others, I think sometimes the reason that we give is that we just say, look, I don't want to be a burden. And I get it. I don't like to inconvenience people. I don't want to be a burden either. But, but listen, newsflash, can I just insult you for a minute? 
You always have been a burden. Did you not know that every breath you take is borrowed? That your very existence is a generous donation of God's own life? Or are you self-created? Did you not know that every moment of every day you are held together by someone else in whom you live and move and have your being? And did you not forget that for nine months your mother grew you in her womb and she protected you and she carried you? All the while, all you did was kick her stomach. Did it slip your mind that when you were a child, someone else put food on your table? Someone else changed your diaper? Someone else bathed you? You are not self-generated. You are not self-sustained. The sun warms you. The air oxygenates you. The land provides food, trees, and lumber, which give you shelter. Springs underground provide reservoirs of water. Every day you take food you did not grow and you utilize technologies you did not invent and you drain time and energy and love from family members and neighbors that sometimes you did not deserve. I mean, when have you not been a burden? And I'm just getting started. I mean, if you're a follower of Jesus, I mean, when did the people around Jesus ever not be a burden to Jesus? I mean, when the crowds were hungry, Jesus fed them. When they were confused, Jesus taught them. When they were sick, he healed them. When they were demonized, he freed them. When an adulteress was condemned, he defended her. When paralytics were lowered through the roofs, he forgave them. When children needed a blessing, he received them. And when our sin was too much to bear, he bore it in himself. And when death and darkness looked like it had the final word, he rose victoriously from the dead. Friends, if you don't want to be a burden, you are in the wrong religion. Actually, you're in the wrong universe. It's not good for you to be alone. You need help. You know, this time I want to invite our band to come up. And I just want to say this in closing. You know, God has seen your need and my need for help, and he has met it with his own generous giving. God is so, so generous to you and me. And his generosity is seen in this first gift to the first human. What does he give? He gives... Eve, who is made in God's very image. So that when Adam receives Eve, Adam in some distant and dim and and faded way actually receives something of God himself. Some resemblance, though faint and marred, of who God is. And God has given to you broken, marred images of himself. He has given himself to you through the people around you. But you know, 2,000 years ago, God did much more because God didn't simply give to us a faint image of himself. God took on flesh and bone, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone, the, 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 the eternal, infinite God took on flesh and bone and walked among us.
so that he might give to you God's very self because God is so, so generous. But this gift of God's self is only available to those who know they need help. But listen, if you are new to Christianity, if you're kind of investigating who God is, you need to know this. When it comes to God, all you need is need. All you need is need. You don't need to clean yourself up. You don't need to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You don't need to get religion. You don't need to clean up your life. All you need is need. And God meets you in your need with his gracious gift of himself and his forgiveness in his life. And this is not simply a gift we receive once. This is a gift we continually open our lives up to and receive again and again. So today we close our time out sharing together in the Lord's Supper. In just a minute, uh, I'm gonna invite you to take those elements that you received and go ahead and you can prepare them, take the tops off the, the, the cup. When you walked in, your hands were likely empty and you received these tangible gifts into your hands. And it is a symbolic way of saying God has come to us when when we come to him with our empty hands and he fills them with the tangible gift of himself. Father, we come to you as broken, needy people. We have always been needy. We have always needed help. God, forgive us for those many times when we have denied the help that is all around us. God, open us afresh, even in this practice of sharing in the Lord's Supper, to open our hearts to you again and to receive your help and your love and your grace into our lives. In Christ's name we ask this, 